Hello and welcome to the brand new You Show, the podcast dedicated to helping you clearly confidently market your brand so you flourish. I'm your host, Ryan Roten, and today's guest is William Leach, the best-selling author of the book, Marketing to Mind States, a practical guide to applying behavioral design to marketing. William is also the founder and CEO of Trigger Point Design and of Mind State Group, where he helps his clients design marketing that psychologically compels your customers to listen, care, and act. William, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Brand New You Show. Ryan, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. I am uh, super excited to talk about your book. It makes so much sense to me on so many levels. And we were talking before I flipped the camera on as a story brand uh, guide, your stuff maps to story brand so well, but it goes so much deeper. And I'm super excited to get into that discussion with you. However, before we get started, I do have one question I like to ask all of my guests before we begin, which is if you could vacation in only one place for the rest of your vacation days, where would you go? I have this locked and loaded two years ago. My brother went to a specific country to work for a year, and we took my family to this country. And to this day, it is the greatest country I've ever been to. We were even thinking about moving there one day, oh, wow. and that is Croatia. Oh, wow. It is okay. the most underestimated country out there in terms of vacation spots. The people are lovely. The food is amazing. It's on the Mediterranean. Infrastructure is great. I, I can't say enough about Croatia. In fact, I shouldn't say so much because it's going to get more and more tourists. Croatia is it. If you have any doubts on where to take your family, Croatia is the deal. Well, you are definitely the first person to ever say Croatia. <laughs> Different countries in that region, but not Croatia. So I'm curious. I'm going to go ahead and kick yeah. stuff off here to about your book, Marketing to Mind States. What yeah. is it mind state when you are in Croatia? In Croatia, wow, that would have to be optimistic engagement, meaning I am seeking to let loose but also I want to maximize relaxation. So that's all about the engagement motivation. I am maximizing it. So that is, that is the one. Amazing. So we'll get into, we'll get into some, some of the mind state stuff here as we go into this conversation. But before we get there, I do want to kind of, let's just ground everybody. What is a mind state? Yeah. So mind states, imagine that you're under a, a mind state in moments of temporary emotional arousal. The best way I describe this is, you know, every single day throughout the day, there are times where you're really kind of engaged and something really just captivates you. And lots of times, you know, and probably the majority of time you're in habit world, you're just basically going through the motions, you're uh, running off rituals. In these moments when you have this kind of captivation, you're kind of emotionally excited, that mind state. And what I like to tell people is that mind states are actually of very specific behavioral science principles. So when you're under these mind states, you're more susceptible to influence because you're using emotional decision-making, emotional processing. Mm. So many questions just on that answer. But let, you have a very interesting story that you kick your book off with when you first kind of realized mind states and how they step in, if you will, to take over your buying decisions. Can you tell us about that story? Sure. So my background is consumer insights. And I was for about 20 years in corporate side marketing research doing kind of you know normal marketing research. And at the time, I was actually over at Frito-Lay over in Dallas, Texas, working at a neurological and psychological laboratory, doing a lot of really cool experiments. And we're pregnant, right? And we were looking for, you know, daycare options, right? And 
Nicholas wasn't born yet. And so we're going all around to different options. And uh, lo and behold, we didn't really make a decision on which option, but my son was born prematurely. We still have about five weeks left to go. And I'm a man of discipline. I came from the US military. I'm a man of processes and of less lists. And that was not on my list there, Ryan. So <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Like my, my wife's giving birth and all of a sudden baby was fine. Everything was perfect. But then all of a sudden I'm sitting in the room. It, my wife, in fact, gave birth in just less than an hour in labor and she gave birth, right? So wow. it was done. It was over. And I'm sitting there in the room and she knew I was freaking out. And she's like, why don't you just go home and just go rest and come back and bring me the, right. And I just felt so insecure, like a new dad would feel, right. I didn't know how to be a dad yet because I had five weeks to figure it out. And as I was pulling out of the hospital parking lot, I look across the road and there is this daycare called Carpe Diem. And we had looked at it, but there wasn't even necessarily in my top, I guess it was maybe my top five, but we weren't even close yet. And all I remembered was I need to go there. And I drove across the street and I came in there. And at the moment I was in a temporary moment of arousal. I was under emotions, emotions were driving me. I went across the street and I signed them up for daycare without even thinking because it made me feel better emotionally. Like this is my first attempt to be a dad. I'm going to go do it. And and if any, any of the dads out there are listening you may have done something similar. You may have gone and found a pacifier. You may have you know, lit up the cigar. There's something, a ritual, something that took over. And for me, it was, I need to be a dad and therefore I need to go and sign him up for something. And so that was my first introduction of, wait a minute, I didn't make rational decisions. In fact, I was irrational as hell. I didn't even have my wife in the car with me when I decided the fate basically of our child. I signed paperwork and put a credit card down and the deposit because I just needed to feel like a dad in that moment. And that was the closest thing to dadhood I had. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of fathers right now who can relate to that and mothers as well. I mean, I think of the amount of irrational decisions I have made on the spur of the moment over the years. And what I don't want to do is think about how much that has cost me. (laughs) But the science would also say it's helped you because a lot of times our irrational decisions are based upon our, our things that worked in the past. So they're not all bad, right? So, you know, the science right. would say, yeah, you're right. There's probably some things like, boy, I wish I could take that back, but there's probably a, a tenfold of, of things that you did that were irrational that have helped you. And you just didn't even know because they were subconscious. Yeah. Well, I can tell you right now, one of them was becoming uh, certified in story brand. Really? It was, it was one of those things I had told myself over and over and over that as soon as they offered a certification, I was doing it. And the day it came out, I didn't even think about it. I was just like, Wow. Here you go. Take it. And that is, I think, because they had gotten past my psychological filter so many times with their messaging, which I'm going to get to in a minute, that it made it, even though it was an emotional decision, it made it seem rational. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons understanding mind states of your customers is because uh, you have a term in your book that I like, but the world is actually in this state of what's called, you call VUCA, or you heard it said somewhere else. So can you talk a little bit about what VUCA is and how it impacts the way we market? I sure can. It was a term that I picked up about a decade ago at a conference called the Institute for the Future. And they study, you know, as you can imagine, the future. And basically the term came from VUCA, V-U-C-A, is that because of technology, and this was a decade ago, this is just barely Facebook wasn't even really starting to get a lot of momentum yet. And they said, because of technology and everybody was going to have these phones where we could access the internet and we could actually create podcasts, we could basically run our businesses off our phone, that the world was going to become volatile, 
more uncertain, more chaotic or complex, and more ambiguous, VUCA. And because of that, we as marketers, we're going to have to adapt. And 10 years later, we are now having to adapt. And you know what the data would show you is that you're making about 35,000 decisions on any given day. I mean, 35,000. You're hitting, last time I saw the data, and this was over a year old, so it's probably already dated, that most people are hit with between six and 10,000 marketing messages a day. Not brand impressions, marketing messages. And so because of that, because of all this complexity, because we can all do advertising on our phone, we can all constantly message and we're being hit with advertising. That has big ramifications on the way we message to people and the way we, that we market. Right. And one of the things we need to do as marketers is break through this psychological filter that our minds have. Can you tell us what this, what that is? Yeah. So, you know, because of this, your mind filters the vast majority of messages. And I like to equate it almost to like a pool. So imagine if you guys out there, you have a pool and you're cleaning your pool and you have that net, right? And imagine your pool is kind of your consciousness. Like, that is the things when you're thinking and constantly leaves are blowing in there. That's all the marketing messages and it's all the stuff is trying to access, you know, your water. And then, you know, what's happening is you have this filter and this filter is constantly taking all of those leaves and they're taking them all those messages and they're just kind of filtering them out. They're throwing them outside of your pool. So you got to imagine that out of those six to 10,000 marketing messages, the vast majority. And I, I don't know, I've seen data up to about 89%. I bet it's even higher, honestly, Ryan. The fact of the matter is, I don't know the exact number. I can tell you that less than probably one in 10 of every piece of marketing that you're sending out is ever reaching any sort of consideration from your customer. So understanding that filter, that psychological filter is just as important as your targeting system, any kind of data analytics you have, any kind of research, because you can have the best marketing in the world. You can have the most like engaging photograph and engaging copy, but yet if it's not created in a way to go pass through this filter, it's never even seen. If you're not seen, then you're not, you're not, uh, you're not going to grow your business, right? One of the things that you talk about in the book too, from a psychological filter standpoint, is really understanding the context in which people are viewing your marketing messaging. And there's four things that you talk about when it comes to context. There's location, people, feelings, and framing. And just real quickly, when you talk about location, what are we referring to from a context standpoint? Yeah, it's where you are when you are going to make a decision. So we make we behave very differently at church than we do at a bar. So there are certain rituals and rules that you have established based upon where you are, what your location you're at. You're at. If you're at your house, you're going to look at messaging differently than if you're sounds terrible, but driving right. So context matters a lot as it relates to where you are, just because social norms exist. Right, and then with people, you're referring to what? Yeah, much more psycho- psychology. So I behave very differently as a dad with my son when I'm trying to get him to eat vegetables, right? I'm a very different person than I am with my friends when we're kind of watching a football game. So who you're with dictates, again, your receptivity and messaging because, you know, we'll talk about this in a second, because your mind state can often change based upon who's with you at the time mm-hmm. where you're receiving information. You're different when you're alone than you are with people. 
So location could be I'm sitting on my couch scrolling through my phone and I have my friends around and we're all talking about something. And then I happen to see that something because we all know Facebook is listening and they deliver ads to us based on that. And then I go, you know what? If I purchase this, I get into the third contextual factor factor now, which is feelings. It might make me feel good or feel part bigger, a larger part of this group, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you're seeking your feelings, right? To feel a certain way. And we call those desires, you know, nowadays, but ultimately that's exactly like it's a psychology. And also, you know, in that world of psychology or feelings, you know, there's also just habits and rituals. So you have to take those in consideration too, because, you know, so much of your life is based upon habits and rituals and things like that. So you better know that as a messenger, because your final decision oftentimes has to fit within a ritual of some kind, because we don't like to to move away from rituals in our habits. Right. And then the last piece of context, you talk about framing, which is how you frame your messaging with words and visuals. Can you talk about what role framing has when it comes to tapping into someone's non-conscious mind? Yeah, that that is probably the only thing we can control as marketers, right? I can't control the location really that somebody's under. I mean, we can debate that over beer, got it. I can't control whether I have my son with me or not when I'm scrolling through my, you know, through my Facebook feed. I can't control whether I'm in love or if I'm in a bad mood. You know, as a marketer, I can't control any of those variables. What I can control is context. I can control the words I use and the visuals I use. And so as a marketer, that to me is like, that's why I love subconscious marketing. I love the mindset marketing because it's something now that we can control and there's science behind how to message to people in a way that, you know, helps, helps you get through that psychological filter when I'm not, you know, when I'm with my son on the couch, watching a football game, highly excited how do I get my, you know, my copy that's dedicated to toilet paper? How does that make sense in that environment? Hopefully messaging to a mind state, right? That's the only wow. way it's going to make sense. Okay. So that's super weird because I have been seeing in my Instagram feed, a lot of uh, messages recently for toilet paper called reels which Real is stuff. bamboo toilet paper, right? And there, one of the things that you talk about is we still have a pandemic going on. You don't want to have to worry about running out of toilet paper. You know, like if you read their messaging, it's trying to get into that psychological filter to get you to subscribe. Ryan, that is insane, right? Because a year ago, there's no way in the world that would hit your feet or that you would even notice it. Imagine the- or cared. Yeah, right. <laughs> Imagine all the other marketers right now that are trying to get a you know breakthrough and you're not seeing those messages. Like you can't even give me the example because they're going, they're flying past, but for whatever reason, and I kind of have an idea about the reasons I've done research in the space, that toilet paper message is resonating. And it's not just because, and I'm telling you, it's not just because you know, we're in the pandemic and we had this kind of scare for toilet paper. There are other things that are happening psychologically that make that message filter or get through that filter that a year ago just wasn't being messaged in that way. Yeah. Very interesting. Before we move on, I want to touch on this. One of the areas that I help my clients with through StoryBrand and other methodologies is really uh, turning their website into something that a client can go and read and see themselves kind of in their solution, which is a mixture of obviously words and visuals. How important are visuals when it comes to framing? Yeah. When you have the ability to use visuals, it is your most important thing you can do in the first one twentieth of a second. So let me explain. When you look at anything, so I, I used to run the neuroscience lab at PepsiCo. So I had five neuroscientists on staff. I'm, I, I still do a lot of neuromarketing, which is slightly different than than the book talks about. 
But here's the idea. In the first 1 20th of a second, whenever you look at a website, you have an initial neurological reaction. It's before you have a minute to even think, to think about what you're seeing. So it takes your rational mm-hmm. or even your emotional mind about a half a second to start thinking, is this good or bad? The neurological mind in one-tenth of a second, and it looks at something that says an avoidance reaction or an approach reaction. The way to correct and really focus and get the mind to accept something in the first one-twentieth of a second, yep, is visuals. So I, in fact, I just literally wrote, a, wrote an article about this in the, in the best, you know, one of the fastest things you can do. And I don't know if everybody else has the ability to do this, but show a face. Faces neurologically, hopefully a smiling face, right, Ryan? But right, right. faces, the, the the human brain picks up faces incredibly fast. And so I used to do this neurotesting and the, the eyes go immediately to a face. If I have a bunch of different body parts, it'll automatically go to the face as fast as faster than the mind even can work. It's a neurological reaction. So that first one, 20 the second, visuals matter. Then after that, psychology copy comes into play. But if you screw up the visual, you never read the copy or a lot of people just disengage. Even if eye tracking shows that they're still on your site, the mind is wandering. The mind mm-hmm. wanders. I've, I've tested it with EEG. So that first visual is everything. In that first one, 20 the second, if you can just keep them there and there's an approach reaction, now they'll read the copy at the headline. That, but, yeah. but first it's the visual almost always. Yeah. And then I'd imagine if there's a disconnect between the copy and the face, if you will, like you can say you got an angry face because you're trying to show somebody who's frustrated, but then your words are all like happy and joyful. Like that probably creates a, a disconnect as well. Dissonance. Yep. We call it psychological dissonance. And so, and, and that dissonance may not make somebody automatically reject it, but it's the first step in them not engaging, right? It's like, that doesn't make sense to them. They would never, oftentimes they don't even realize it. And if you do that enough times, all of a sudden that takes somebody from, yeah, this is interesting. I want to keep reading to, well, I'll scroll past it or I'll just, I'll just get off that site. So you can't do it very often. What we're talking about is kind of the system one, system two decision-making process, right? You mentioned the first neurological reaction. That's like a system one process, right? So tell us when it comes to making decisions, we all have these two systems. We got system one and system two, which I wrote down jokingly in the book as I was taking notes, thing one and thing two. Ah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) What, What is system one? Yeah. So system one is the part of your brain of your decision-making system that makes decisions very quickly kind of based upon emotion. So think of it as that first one twentieth of a second, or when we're not really contemplating like pros and cons of a decision, that's system one. System two are those types of decisions that are more weighted on consciousness, rationalized cost-benefit analyses. Something about a guy, a guy by the name of Daniel Kahneman. If you are listening on this podcast and you're in marketing, you should know this guy by the name of Daniel Kahneman. He won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years ago, and he's the first non-economist to ever win the Nobel Prize in economics. He's a psychologist. He's, mm. he's the most profound psychologist of our day. He wrote this best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. But his overall point was that you have system one and system two. System one, your non-conscious, your emotional brain is so much faster, so much you know quicker, so much more powerful that it overrides the rational system two brain. So you better understand that system one, because for so many years, we all talked about system two marketing. It was all about tell people the rational benefits that you'll get. Here are the top three things you're going to get if you use uh, my products. 
And what you now realize is that from a biological perspective, your non-conscious, that emotional reaction, that system one is so much more powerful that it has to kind of live. And it oftentimes overrides your system two, those rational proof points that we were taught up. I mean, back when I did my MBA work, you know, we were told that we have to have our benefits. We have to have our list of benefits that I had when I wanted Nicholas to get into a daycare were never looked at. It was an emotional decision I saw across the street. So that's system one, taking over my mind, making a decision. It turned out to be great, but I had nothing to do with the benefits or the cost. I just did it. So throw out the pros and cons list. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> it didn't matter at that point. I was going to be a good dad, right? But all the research says, especially in the last few years, that like 80% of buying decisions are made on emotions. And then we use system two or the rational part of our brain to justify the purchase. That's right. So the reason why I love what you said, how important are the visuals? There's lots of times there's not a lot of rational decision-making in a visual, right? There's not a pros and cons list in a visual that comes with copy. That's why the visuals matter so much because you get the emotional reaction and then your copy can list out those 20%, the rational mind system too. That's fine, but you got to get that emotional reaction first. That's the way we make decisions and therefore your marketing should kind of fit that same, that kind of same process. So system one is, I'm going to equate this to story brand for those who, those people who know it, the second step in our process called problems, and it breaks it into three pieces. The second piece they refer to as an emotional problem, which is essentially how does the actual problem make you feel? And knowing that 80% of our decisions are based on eliminating that emotional problem so that we can then later go back and justify we bought it because we get rid of the actual problem. (laughs) You know, how, like when you say benefits, are you referring to emotional benefits that people obtain as a result of purchasing a product from you? Or are those more the, Hey, I hope you overcome that, that problem that you're facing. Yeah, I meant in that example, more of the second part, the more rational, here are the five things that I can do. Now, the emotional, the emotions you feel, if you satisfy those five things, then then that's the emotional benefit. I think that's really important to talk about those things. Those should get more of the highlight of, of any kind of copy is the way you will feel if you buy my product. Oh, and why should I trust your product? Well, here are the five things that my product does for you, and they will make you feel this way. Ah, got it. Okay, cool. So for system one, system two, obviously system one is kind of driving a lot of what we do and our decisions and especially buying habits. However, in your research, is there a price point where if I go above it, like system one just can't justify it, it has to go to system two to say, okay, how do I make this decision or how do I make this purchase? The, the, the price point will be your budget and for sure it'll be your budget, right? So regardless of whether you have a dollar and you're trying to figure out what piece of candy can I have because that's my budget or if you're buying a house, there is a budgetary dollar that will almost always kick in system two, which will make you say, well, I, I, I love this house, but I can't afford 150,000. Like my budget is 149,000. Okay. So there is that. The other, the other, the numbers, if you will, will be, what is reasonable, and I'm putting air quotes there, in the category. And there's that's a number that you have and everybody has in their mind that they're not even aware of. Now, research will tell me your number and I do that research, right? I have to, because for me to create value in your mind, value is, is nothing more than an artificial price point in your mind that you feel is fair. And that price point in your mind, you're not even aware of it oftentimes, is based upon past prices, you may have paid for something a decade ago, but in your mind, that should be the price it is. 
Or it could be literally there's this thing called anchoring and, and adjustment in, in the book. I even talk about this where even let's say if you're walking down a grocery store, let's say, let's say you, you sell some chips, I don't care, whatever, you sell candy bars. As you're walking into the candy bar aisle, Ryan, and if you walk by, and I'm not making this up, if you walked past the price point, if you saw like a front end or some toilet paper, let's go back to our toilet paper, and the toilet paper is $2.29 for a roll, whatever, that $2.29 is an anchor that your subconscious mind has in the first couple of seconds when you're walking in that aisle. So when now you see a candy bar for $1.29, that feels like a value. Even those, those things are not even, they're not even the same category. All of a sudden you would have thought before, well, a dollar is a reasonable price for a candy bar. It'll escalate it up. You can say, you know, a dollar 29 makes sense. Not because you're comparing against other candy bars, you're comparing against the toilet paper. The subconscious mind is an interesting, interesting thing to think it, to think about. So my whole point of that is that there is no real price point until you're in the moment of making a decision and then your mind looks for anchors. And so the nearest numbers it came up with, whether it's from a past memory, something that was on the desk, that is something that the human mind looks to looks to for a number to base. Is there value? Is there cost effective? Or is it not something that's valuable and it's not cost effective? I want to move into behavioral design now. One of the things I thought was interesting was you used behavioral design to develop a brand identity. How, how does that work? Yeah. So I, I'm a firm believer that marketing is optimized through behavioral science. If you understand how the human mind works and you don't have, understand how people make decisions, then um, you don't truly understand the basics of a brand. The way I think about brands are brands are nothing more than associations that your customers have created between you and themselves, the vast majority of the associations you have no control over. You have no control over. A neighbor talks about your brand and there's a new association. Maybe it's a good association. Maybe it's a bad association, but that's what a brand is. Now, we can control some of those things as brand marketers, and that's important, but realizing that it's just a series of associations. And what's even more important is that those associations can be created that are maybe even removed from something you actively even did. There's a whole bunch of science around this idea that you create associations based upon past memories that may be confused with your brand. So if your brand logo looks like a lo- something that happened or a brand that they used in the past, mm-hmm. associations with that past brand can actually influence. So let's start off with if your brand is a series of associations that you know you're kind of that that's kind of an amalgamation of all these associations that has meaning then i think we need to start thinking of ourselves as brand designers and you can create a brand from the ground up thinking through what associations do i want to kind of create and those feelings that i want to create for my customer and that's the basics and the basis of behavioral design branding through a behavioral design lens yeah i like associations because for example i'm associated with storyram so just because I'm associated with StoryBrand, there's automatically a certain level of using StoryBrand's vernacular authority that gets passed to me. And then I borrow and use that authority when I'm doing my marketing, if I'm talking about StoryBrand, because people recognize that. Not everybody, but most, some people recognize that. It's a great point. And then when Donald Miller comes out with his next book, and if that book is successful, those associations will ladder to you. They'll, they'll make their way to you. If it's not successful, something you don't control, right? 
right. then they do. So I, lo- I love that analogy because it just goes and builds again and again, just on what you just said. So you're held captive to the success of the, the good things that StoryBrand does and then things that they don't do so well, then those things will eventually halo to your brand, whether you like it or not. So you better be very sure about those associations. Right. So uh, Marketing Made Simple was a book that came out too. So I get associated and asked about that book. And then a new one that's coming out next year is called Business Made Simple. So there's big benefits in associations just from a, I think, a psychological standpoint when people see it and make that connection. Because you said something that like I've heard it multiple times before is your brand is really not controlled by you. It's owned by everybody else. All you can really do is help to set those perceptions and you can do part of that through associations. Yeah. And I don't mean to, you know, I know we're using big words and, you know, a whole funny thing with story brand is like simplicity simple matters. Clear, we yeah. should be very simple, right? <laughs> there, there are big words behind these concepts, but the, but the simple fact of the matter is that you're just like you said, your brand is being influenced by these associations and you can help build these associations. I do it through my model, like these four points, goals, motivations, approach, and then these heuristics, let's call them shortcuts. That's how I'm trying to create brands and messaging so I can control those associations as best I can. I mean, we both know that I only have so much control, but for that little amount of control I have, I want to be very deliberate in that control. And that's what the model that I created does. So let's get into that. Behavioral designs, the four factors, goals, motivations, regulatory approach, and cognitive heuristics. What This sounds simple, but like, what is a goal and why do you divide it into two parts? Yep. So a goal is nothing more than the target of people's behaviors. There is no, there is no behavior without a goal, no, no conscious behavior, right? Every time you take an action, it is towards a goal. And so I, I and so goal theory is the basis of, of this. And basically what all goal theory tells you is that there are two types of goals. You have functional goals and higher order goals. Functional goals are those goals that if I asked you, Ryan, right now, give me five things you're trying to accomplish with this podcast, you'd say, I want it to end on time. I want it to be engaging. I want Will to stop using big words, whatever those five <laughs> things are, right? But that so those are those are functional, those are really important to know. But what's right. more important to know is why is that important to you, Ryan? And you say, well, because I want the most successful, engaging content to make my listeners better branders or you know, better business owners. Right. That's the stuff I need to talk to you if I'm going to sell my services to Ryan, the podcaster. So that's the importance or the reasoning behind those functional goals. So when you message to those higher order goals, that more emotional side of those goals, I'm more likely to make it through the first part of that psychological filter we talked about. Tell me, how, how would you do something like that on a website? How would you market a higher order goal? How would you use copy to tap into that? Yeah, I'll tell you. So one of the first things I think actually the StoryBrand site does, or the, the training that you deliver actually does it. It's actually in the map that you have to come up with. But ultimately, what you have to do is speak to the person, mm-hmm. character. Um, the character. And the character has a desired end state. And I think it's it's kind of around in the phil- the philosophical part. So how to bring that to life is it, it, it shouldn't be any harder than just saying, why is it important for your customer to blank? And the important part is the important. You have to use the word important. So don't use that copy. But if you can tap into why it's important to them, that's your first like kind of step into reaching their higher order goal. Yeah. And I I don't want to turn this into an advertisement for StoryBrand, by the way, but 
a story brand is really a filter. I look at it as a filter to help you really narrow down your messaging. What we're talking about with what you do in marketing to mind states is you take that to, I think, what is the next level or the maybe the 10th level, really helping people understand how they can first filter their message so they get to the basics of it. But then how do you expand upon that? And that's where a lot of my clients struggle is they may be able to filter stuff and get a simple, clear message, but they don't know how to use it in application and they don't know how to take it any further. I love what you said about expanding our brands because that's exactly what goals help you do. And I I wrote a a piece about this a couple of weeks ago and this idea of a pizza parlor. So if you make great pizza, you know, you may think that the business you're in is making great pizza. So you may think about, you know, I have the best ingredients. It's a great price. It comes from Italiana, whatever. Those are those functional benefits that are really, really important. But if you started thinking about, well, why are those things important? And it could ladder up, we call it laddering. And it could ladder up to like, you know what? My customers feel like they can bring their family together in my restaurant to connect. That is the place where you're like, that's where I want my website to talk. I want, I want people to think about my place is the place for people to connect. Here's why that's important. Because right yeah. now you may be competing against other pizza places. Okay, great. So you have better toppings, you have lower price points. But imagine if people didn't think of you as a pizza place, they think of you as the place where my family can connect. I am now expanding into other restaurants, coffee shops, entertainment venues. You've just expanded the reach of Mm -hmm. your brand possibilities, just because you're not talking about you becoming the best pizza place. You're thinking about, you're you're trying to communicate that you are the place to bring families together. That's brand stretch. That's how you expand your brand. Yeah. You become, uh, the food becomes almost secondary. Then people become motivated. Your second one in yours to do, (laughs) to go to your restaurant for reasons other than food. And it reminds me of an episode of the office where Jim has been asked to go visit a client and Michael gets set. It's it's the Koi Pond episode, by the way, Michael gets asked to go along. And as Jim is and Michael are talking, Michael asks Jim, is that the watch you're going to wear? And Jim says, yeah, what difference does it make? We're just there to sell paper. And Michael says, well, the paper's really kind of secondary. These people are all about style and fashion and making the right impression. And so that's a motivation. People are motivated by the status of being able to reach an, an aspirational identity, which in this case is maybe prestige or status or something like that. That's right. That's my esteem motivation. You got one of the nine right there. We don't have time to go into all nine, but can you tell us what a primary motivation is and how would we identify it? Yeah. So you have nine core motivations that drive the vast majority of human behavior. The nine are achievement, autonomy, belonging, competence, empowerment, engagement, esteem, nurturance, and security. And the way you identify these things is asking your customers to first talk about their goals. Like, what are you looking for in my company? And they may say things like, I want you to be a great value, great quality service, et cetera. And then you ask, why is that important to you? Now, that gets you to that higher order goal we were talking about, but the language that they use, when you Mm -hmm. ask somebody, why is something important to you? The language they use will oftentimes give you a tell as to which of those nine motivations are kind of driving them. So I'll give you an example for a house. Let's say you're a real estate agent out there. You've got a prospective home buyer and you're, you're kind of asking, okay, what type of house do you look for? Well, I'm looking for four bedrooms, three bathrooms. You know, so those are those functional benefits. And then you say, well, tell me why that's important. And then that home buyer, potential home buyer, may be saying things like, well, you know what? I just got this new promotion 
I love my family to death. And now it's time for us to kind of upgrade the house. She used or he used promotion, upgrade, and then love all in the same sentence. You now know that at least they're being driven by certain by esteem as well as nurturance. Those are the two motivations. Now I can speak to any house I talk about and saying, well, this is an up and coming neighborhood. This has some of the best finish outs because you're using finish outs to help identify the house as a way of them feeling greater esteem. Yeah. One of the things you talk about that I still struggle to this day to put my finger on a really good definition for it, but you have one that really resonates with me in your book, which is an, an aspirational identity. What is an aspirational identity? Yep. Aspirational identity is who do you desire to be in the future? And it's, it's actually a, a psychological phenomenon. We all strive to be better than we are today. We may not know it, but we all strive. Your aspirational identity is who do you see yourself as your best self in the future? And those best selves are coming to mind all the time when you make a decision. It's based on what kind of candy bar, literally, what kind of candy bar do I want to buy? The aspirational identity is influencing that as much as it is your house, the car you buy, et cetera, because you're always striving to become the better version of yourself. Yeah, Apple does a really good job of tapping into aspirational identities. <laughs> they, show, they so do. As, They've been doing it for I, decades. As I look at all the Apple products on my desk. Yeah. <laughs> tell tell me now, now. So like so far, things that are going to make sense to people. Now I'm going to go into two things that are going to be bigger words and people are going to go, wait a minute, what is this? Yep. But you talk about regulatory approach. What is, what is a regulatory approach slash fit? Yep. Let's just talk. Let's just use it as approach. That may be an easier way. When we go after our goals, we are either seeking to maximize gains or minimize loss. So you may even think about it out there as saying, I see the glass half empty or half full. And it's just a natural thing that we do. So we tend to uh, approach goals in, hey, if I do everything I need right now, I will maximize my chances of reaching this goal. Other people will look at it and say, if I avoid any barriers or anything that could kind of um, hurt me in some way, I will, I will minimize my chances of not reaching that goal. So imagine your copy. Your copy changes dramatically based upon the natural approach of your customers. If your customers think of, hey, you are best at helping me eliminate risk, well, then the language you use is going to be different than if you're a brand. And, they, and they're like, no, your brand helps me maximize my gains or my success. So your copy changes a lot. I usually give an example of, let's say if you're selling healthy uh, bars, you can sell that healthy bar based upon my bar, my you know my, my protein bar, or whatever has the most the most protein, the highest quality ingredients. You can talk about the most high quality things, or you can say my bar has no preservatives, no artificial flavors. That's minimizing bad things. Same bar, the way you mm. message that bar matters because we tend to go after things that fit our natural approach. Yeah, and so people who are developing online courses or developing a new product or service would need to understand, do I approach this from this uh, a prevention mindset, minimizing failure or promotion, maximizing success? So example, you know, for your example, we were talking before I flipped on the camera, if you were to put together a certification program around what we're talking about for marketing and mindsets, like you would most likely want to use the promotion approach Probably. to let people know that, hey, if you do this, you can maximize your success of becoming a much better marketer. Unless you've read something where you had a target market that was fearful of losing their job. 
Like okay. for whatever reason, there then you're like, no, we will pre this 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 course will help you minimize your chances of being uh, uh, furloughed. That's the only reason why you would differ different. Same course, but the only reason why you would do it differently. Most most courses are on maximizing potential. Most of them. Yeah. So that I mean that could be a really good A/B test for like Facebook ads or things like that to see which one really resonates with your clients. I do it all the time. I do Facebook ads on that all the time. And it's a small distinction, Ryan, but it makes a big difference. You would be so surprised how, you know, you tweak words just a little bit and it'll make you feel more intuitive. And I, I always say this, if you get this wrong, you're like, let's say you're just going to guess. Most of the time people don't go, oh, I reject this advertising. They don't do that. It just doesn't feel natural. And if something doesn't feel natural, you're less likely to engage with it. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm running ads right now for my course, LinkedIn Made Simple. And I have for, I have a prevention ad and a promotion ad. The go. promotion is more, more along the lines of, hey, if you do this thing, you can become a thought leader. People, you know, you can generate leads for your business, that kind of thing. And the other one is about job loss. Yeah. And look, here's how you can prevent it. And also if you've experienced, here's how we can help you. Yeah. Our research is showing that prevention, those cues are resonating slightly more now because the world is so ambiguous. It's so complex. People just want to feel like they have stability. So actually, if you don't know right now, if you're like, I don't really know which way to go, yeah. you may want to lean more cautious. We call it the cautious approach, that, that prevention approach, because people feel very anxious right now. So I can make you feel better by just saying, I'm going to help you minimize more anxiety. I'm going to help you minimize more chaos because right now we're in that world. Totally makes sense. And the uh, job loss ad, by the way, is outperforming the other one by 3x. Wow. Makes sense. <laughs> hey, there we go. Makes sense from a psychology perspective. All right. Last, last couple of questions here, and then we're going to start to wrap up. Be respectful of your time here. So the last one is what what are these really fancy terms? So let's break down cognitive heuristics. All right. We're going to call them shortcuts. And my next okay. book, it's going to be much simpler after, after doing all the story brand stuff. I know simplicity matters. So a cognitive heuristic is nothing more than a shortcut. So when you're making decisions, you don't do cost benefit analyses of every decision. You actually use these shortcuts that you've learned since you were a kid. So the classic one is something called scarcity effect. But basically, this idea is that we assign value to things that we believe are scarce in nature. So when we say limited time only, the heuristic is called scarcity effect. But what you do as a as kind of somebody who reads that says, oh, there's only a limited option. I better go buy now. So that that's that's one of these heuristics. So these shortcuts are ways to make your customers feel like they're making it easier, faster a decision. And in today's complex world, if you make decision-making faster and easier, it's usually the one that people go after. So you have to identify, I have 21 in my book. There's other books out there that have different ones. I have 21 that keep coming up again and again and again. And if I can integrate scarcity effect, limited time only, or social proof, hundreds of people have used my product. That makes something where normally it's like, well, what's, what's the cost benefit of using Ryan? All of a sudden it's like hundreds of people trust Ryan. I'm, I trust Ryan too. It's just easier. Yeah. Testimonials are a yep. big one. Social proof for those who are thinking, what is that? I mean, it could be as simple as a logo on a website mm -hmm. to let people know, Hey, I work with these types of brands or these types of people. It's back to the association thing. We kind of, we talked about earlier, I think. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Um, those testimonials are social proof. If these people are testifying on your behalf, that provides social proof. So somebody goes, I just feel more comfortable with that. So there are 21 total in my book that you can integrate into your website or into anything you're working on. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Everybody needs to like go pick up your book. It's it truly is amazing. And if you know anything about marketing at all, this the book will just make you a much better marketer, or at least you'll realize when you're making mistakes. <laughs> well, you know, it's also I, what what the book has been told to me is you have now kind of validated things I knew intuitively. So the best marketers and designers and artists out there, they know this stuff intuitively. This book just helps you bring it out so you're more consciously aware of those things that you're already doing naturally. Yeah, well, you can also like pick and choose. Like this applies, this does not. I this yeah. is this is the state the mind state of my client. This is what I need to market to. It's it's really helpful in that manner. I know at least that's the way I read the book as I was going through it. What is one thing? So I want to wrap up and then we'll talk, we're going to talk about the mind straight group before we finish. If you could tell anybody who's listening today one thing that they should do with their marketing to improve it, what would it be? Yeah. So there is one of these shortcuts called ambiguity effect. And what that is, is that when things are ambiguous in nature, if I'm not quite sure exactly what you're saying, we'll avoid it. So clarity is oftentimes, it's it's up there like as being one of the most important things you can do is eliminate ambiguity. And that's hard for people in my space for sure, because we use big <laughs> words and things like that, which we, we well, got to get smarter at, but ambiguity. Marketing in general, like people yeah. like to use fluffy terms and so true. <laughs> it's so true. And in today's world where you're getting inundated by literally four to 10,000 messages or whatever it is, six to 10,000, ambiguity sucks for people. So take as much <laughs> ambiguity out as you can. Three easy steps. Don't use big words. Don't use multiple words. Don't run on sentences. It's really, really important. Yeah. I, um, I'm reading a book right now called The Road Less Stupid. And one of the chapters uh, that I'm reading just this morning, there's a statement in there that says clarity is power. Yep. And yep. and it gets right to the ambiguity point that you're talking about, which is if people don't know, like I, that could be a competitive advantage of me over someone else is that when they come to my site, I'm not ambiguous, I'm clear. And I go yep. to their site and I have to try to think about what they're doing. Yeah. It's, you know, the mind wants to know what to do and when to do it. When you tell the mind what to do and when to do it, that that naturally makes you more appealing. I have a notice on my computer that says, it's dumb not to dumb it down. It's dumb not to dumb it down. And we all got to get better at that for sure. But it's just the times we live in. So tell me a little bit about the MindState Group. What is it? And how do people learn about it? MindState Group is a company that we formed to help marketers get their customers to think, care, and act. And so what we do is we provide different training resources and workshops that help bring, you know, marketing to mindsets to life for brand managers, marketing directors, but also on the agency side, brand planning as creative development people. Yeah. I attended one of your webinars and it was, it was fantastic. Very Thanks. good. Well put together. Even if like, just go check out Mindset Group. You got a bunch of yep. good stuff that you can download there so you can learn more, but more than anything else, go buy the book. The book is, the book yeah, is absolutely amazing. So, Will, what are, are we going to wrap up here? What are some of the best ways for people to get in touch with you? Yep. Mindsetgroup.com is the best way to see all these resources, different offers that we have. I'm really uh, big on LinkedIn and Forbes. So if you look me up on Forbes or on LinkedIn, I post lots of different uh, content. And we just actually started a weekly show on Wednesdays at um, cool. 11 Central on my YouTube channel, as well as my Facebook page. So just look for Marketing to Mind States or Will Leach, the author. And you'll be able to you know, kind of see that weekly show. Awesome. Do you have any final thoughts, tips, words of wisdom you'd like to pass on to anybody that's listening today? Two things. One is all the stuff that we're talking about is actually very simple, guys. There's a lot of big academic words that people have been talking about for ages. 
it's actually very simple. Tell people their goal, make them feel a, a motivation, and then just frame up using some simple language, avoiding loss or maximizing gains, and you will have much more successful marketing. And then this, the, the last thing, again, I would just say, tell the mind what to do and when to do it. Because we all crave simple messaging that tells me what to do. And if you can do those two things, I can tell you, you it's very easy to get double digit lifts in your marketing. We've got lots of case studies that show it ourselves. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for a, for sharing your knowledge with us through the book, Marketing to Mindstays. Again, people listening, you should go pick it up. It's amazing. But also uh, thank you for your time. I know you're busy and I appreciate you being here today. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Appreciate you. Today's show was edited and produced by Ryan Roden. The music for today's show is Hudson Hawk by Neon Beach. All music licenses were purchased via soundstrike.com.